Good morning, church. Good morning. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, I wanted to remind you, church, uh, as we begin December, we are in the season of Advent, um, remembering that, that Christ is coming and, and the world is celebrating because you think for the majority of, of human history, people are looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so we just remember that uh, together. And I think it's so cool that we get to go through the book of John as we're in this season of Advent because the gospels really serve as the bridge that connects us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that changed everything and we get to see incredible things when people realize that Jesus was the Messiah that they had waited for for so, so long. And church, sometimes we say things like, man, I wish I could have been there and seen Jesus. We, we would have seen so many cool things. Church, did you know that we're going to see greater things when he comes back? We're in a season of Advent now and he's coming back and we're going to see some pretty incredible things when he returns in his glory. In John chapter 6, we've, we've looked, they're spending two weeks in this chapter, Blake Hardeman came last week, and we looked at the miracle that Jesus performed. Jesus fed the multitude of people. Remember, the disciples were, were stressed out. They were freaking out. How are we going to feed all of these people? And Jesus said, you feed them. And they couldn't on their own power, but Jesus could through his. And so he gave thanks, and he, he, he blessed the, the five loaves and the two fish, and he, he fed the multitude. And then he asked the disciples, he told them, he said, go pick up the leftover baskets. Can you imagine being the disciples? You're so worried about God's power and his provision. And then just a little bit later, you see God work and you're picking up the baskets of his faithfulness. That's kind of an, a humbling thing for them to do. And then they go across the Sea of Galilee and they, they hear Jesus' teaching. And we see this enormous crowd that had been fed follow Jesus to the other side. And it's interesting, as Blake said, in the beginning of John chapter 6, there's a crowd. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd, but at the end of John chapter 6, he's deserted by this crowd. Why do these people leave Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us that they followed him, they, they, they traveled with him, and, and went after Jesus because they had been physically fed. But when he began to feed them spiritually, share the message of the gospel, they didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And we see even his disciples say, this is a very difficult teaching. In this passage, we see such a varied response to the message of Jesus. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us that people respond in different ways to the message of Jesus. And so, in fact, I want us to think about this passage in John chapter 6 through the lens of one of Jesus's parables, very familiar parable that Jesus told. Remember, a parable is a spiritual story that is going to illustrate a point. And it's in Mark chapter 4 when, when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower who sowed some seeds. Y'all know this story? Jesus tells us that the, that the word or the seeds were the word of God. And this man went out to plant these seeds, to plant the word of God among people. And some different things happened with these, uh, with these seeds. Some um, fell and were immediately uh, taken up by the bird. So the, the word was planted and then they were taken up by the bird. Second, we see some of these seeds fell on rocky soil. And so they weren't able to develop a good root system. And when the sun came up, they were immediately scorched. And then some seeds fell among the thorny ground and were choked up by the thorns. Sometimes Jesus' parables are hard to understand. But what's really cool about this parable is Jesus explains it to us exactly what it means. He tells us that the, the seeds that were snatched up 
up by the birds represent those that were snatched up because of, sa- uh, of spiritual warfare. Satan came and took the word out of our hearts. We see that there's a seed that has no roots. This is the person who doesn't endure trials for a while, that they receive the word and, and are excited about it, but they don't endure when unpleasant things begin. And then the seeds that are choked up by the thorns represent those who, who hear the gospel and accept it, but then they are... Uh, they are uh, distracted by uh, difficult circumstances or the cares of this world. I think of materialism, worrying about the future, and so the gospel doesn't grow. But then we're told about good soil. We're told about these people who hear the word. It grows in their hearts, and then they produce a harvest. And how does Jesus describe the uh, correct soil, the good soil? It's those who grow and help others grow. You think about one kernel of corn that is planted in the ground can grow a, a stalk of corn with several ears. What kind of multiplying power is that? And this is what the gospel is supposed to do in all of our lives. In church, what we see is that many people in this crowd, they're bad soil. And then yet we see Peter give us a declaration of faith to say, I know that you have the words of life. We see the good soil response as well. The question we need to ask ourselves is what kind of soil am I? How do I respond to the message of the gospel, even when it's hard to hear? Starting in verse 35, Jesus explained to us his message. He gave us the good news of the gospel. I know Chase did a phenomenal job reading, starting in verse 41. I want us to start in verse 35, and I just want us to hear what Jesus had to say. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's a pretty clear gospel explanation. Think about all the things Jesus is teaching us there in just those first five verses. He's telling us that he came from the Father. It was the Father's will for these people to be saved. And if they came to Jesus, believed in him, received him, then they would have eternal life. And he tells us about resurrection as well. He says that I will raise you up on the last day. You will have eternal life in my name. What kind of incredible gospel doctrine we see just in these first five verses. And you think that the Jews would respond to it well. This is the man who had fed them. This is the man who had worked miracles. They're following him because of his power. But when they hear his message, they don't receive it with gladness. In fact, verse 41, they begin to grumble. Do you see this in verse 41? Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. When Jesus is saying this, he's tying uh, the, the illustration of his miracle and of himself to the Old Testament, right? When God fed the Israelites miraculously by bringing bread from heaven through the manna. And Jesus says, hey, I came down out of heaven. Why was this a problem for the Jews? Notice verse 42. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They say, we know this guy's parents. How could he be from heaven? It's so interesting, y'all. Jesus in the flesh for them was not proof. It was actually a stumbling block. 
We've said before, man, if we could just see Jesus, then we would believe in him. They saw him. They saw his power, but they couldn't get over the fact of we know who his parents are. We say, man, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe in him. And we see even for these people who saw him and saw his power, seeing was not believing. It was actually harder for them to believe because there was a person standing in front of them claiming to be the son of God. They couldn't understand that he was the son of God. So interesting, they grumble and says, this is his claim, but we know who his parents are. And remember, church, he is the son of Mary. But biologically, he's not the son of Joseph, and he is the son of God. But they didn't believe the story around his birth, believe the witness around his birth to say that he was um, immaculately conceived and from um, God. It's just so interesting that the flesh part for them was not evidence. It actually was a hard thing to understand. And so they actually stumbled over the fact that he was in the flesh. And Jesus teaches us a little bit about salvation as a result of their grumbling. Notice verse 43 through 45. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Now, I'll be, I'll be honest, I'll be tempted to gloss over these verses sometimes in studying, but it's very important what Jesus is saying here. He's told us that he's the bread who comes down out of heaven. What he's saying is I have come from the father and they say, there's no way you come to the Father. And his response is to say, well, if you do not know me, if you do not receive me, then you, have, you don't know the Father. He says, because everyone who comes to me is drawn by the Father. It's interesting, y'all. We see this comprehensive work of salvation by our God. If I asked you, how am I connected to the Father, what would you say? How am I connected to the Father? Well, many of us might remember John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we get to the Father? Through the Son. But Jesus taught us in John chapter 6, verse 43, we get to the Son because of the grace of the Father. I don't get to the Father because I go out and find Jesus and I believe in him or work my way up to somehow being one of Jesus' disciples. No, I, am in, I encounter Christ. I am connected to Jesus through the grace of the Father. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. If you know Jesus, it's because the Father has given you his grace first by sending Jesus to the world. Remember, this gospel story was initiated by the Father. The Father sent the Son. He gave the Son so that we might have life in his name. This is an important concept because many of us have this perception that Jesus is our buddy. Jesus is gracious. He understands what we're going through. He's merciful, and the Father sits up in heaven, disconnected from humans, doesn't really like humans, and doesn't want to save us. But y'all, the Father sent the Son. And we would have no Son without the, the desire and the grace and the work of the Father. And if I am in Christ, and if I'm connected to the Father, it's because of the Father's grace poured out on me through the person of Jesus the Pharisees and the Jews in this crowd, they had an issue because Jesus was in the flesh. I also want you to notice the other thing that they couldn't understand what he was saying. It's in verse 51. He said, I am the living bread that comes 
down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus teaching in spiritual terms here, using an illustration saying that my blood and my body is what you need for eternal life. And the Jews are not having this. Did you notice verse 42? Earlier, we were told they started complaining. In verse 52, we're told they began to argue with one another. Then the Jews began to argue saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says, if you're going to have life in my name, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And immediately, some people there go, okay, it's He's talking about cannibalism here. Now, notice this was one interpretation, but not the only interpretation of Jesus' teachings, or the Jews wouldn't have been arguing with one another. But I want you to remember, we've already seen in John chapter 5, the Jews are already plotting to kill him, and they're already plotting to discredit him. And have you guys ever seen someone before, they're listening to every word you're saying, not to learn from you, but to discredit you? This is politics, Right? Go through and figure out everything this candidate has said so we can find one thing that's crazy so we can put it on a commercial for all of us to view over and over again. Right? Anybody tired of politi- political ads at this point? Amen. That's what the Jews do here. They're, they're thinking, what can I find? Something that he says that's against the law or something that's a little bit crazy. And so as soon as Jesus says this in verse 51, they say, how can he give us his flesh? Do you hear this guy? He's crazy. He wants us to eat his flesh. And Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus doesn't say, oh, of course, you've, you've misunderstood me. Notice what he says in verse 53. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Jesus says, this is the thing that makes you right with God. And all the other things you've been trusting in, your culture, your religion, your works, they're not good enough. You have no life in yourself, and I am the one who can give you life. This is a hard truth. You can't earn it. You can't work toward it. You can't do it on your own. Only I can give it to you. Jesus says you have no life in yourself. That's an important concept for us to understand before salvation. It's also a very important uh, concept for us to understand after our salvation. Paul understood it in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on, on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, if Christ is your life, then you'll be raised. But if your life is your life, we're in deep water. We're in deep trouble. Church, this is one of the most fundamental beliefs of our faith. I have done so much wrong that I am dead. I've hurt too many people. I've been too selfish. I have been too prideful, and I cannot have eternal life in my name. That our God is good, and he loves us, and he's created us. But because of my sin, I'm not good enough for him. I'm disconnected. I have no life in myself. And only Jesus, by his sacrifice, can give me his life. He's the only one who can connect me to this life. The Jews do not respond well to this idea. 
that they have no life in themselves. There's no answer for them. They can't do anything to improve their situation. Only Jesus can. He's the only way to the Father. And not only does the crowd abandon him, but we see even some of his disciples struggle with this statement. Notice verse 60 with me. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, in verse 60, it says some of his disciples. Is this talking about the 12 disciples? No, it's not. I think sometimes we have this idea that Jesus had 12 friends, and that's it. (laughs) Jesus had 12 followers that stuck with him, and then everybody else just kind of came and went. But, y'all, this really isn't the case. In fact, we see Jesus have kind of different levels of leadership um, from his ministry and people following him. We know that within the 12, he had three, right? Peter, James, and John, who got to go along for certain things that the other 12 or the other nine didn't. And then Jesus had the 12 disciples. But in Luke chapter 10, we also see him send out 72 disciples, two by two, to proclaim the gospel. So in verse 60, this is some of his disciples, some of his followers who were not Bart of the 12. And notice what they say. They hear his teachings. We have no life in ourselves. You need my body. You need my blood if you're going to have life. In verse 60, they say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus, what you're saying is really, really hard. Commentators are unanimous. When they say difficult, they don't mean difficult in the sense of, I can't understand this. They mean difficult in the sense of, I don't want to swallow this. This is unpleasant. This doesn't hit my ears well. I don't like to hear who can listen to this. Church, I think this is very important for us to understand that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is offensive. It's unpleasant and it's difficult. It's very simple to understand and yet it is very difficult. And there will be a temptation in my life and in your life to trade the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for the pleasant gospel of Liam Hardy. To say, oh, there are some things that I don't like about what Jesus teaches. They, they, they rub me the wrong way. They, they convict me of my sin. So I'm just going to forsake it or even more dangerous, just rewrite it. And minimize the parts that are unpleasant to me in church. While my gospel is pleasant and seedless, it is also powerless. And his gospel is unpleasant, but it is so effective. And there's a temptation in so many of us to adopt a pleasant gospel or a prosperity gospel. But the moment we do that, we lose the power of the gospel and only his will bring life in his name. You know, Paul told us, he told Timothy that we would not endure sound doctrine. Notice what he says. He says, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to miss. Paul says, in your church, there are going to be some people who are going to hear some very unpleasant things about the truth. The truth is going to hurt sometimes. And instead of enduring that and receiving that into their hearts, they're going to go look for teachers who will say exactly what they want to hear. They won't endure the truth, and so they'll go somewhere else. And what's so scary is it says that they'll find teachers who will say exactly what they want to hear. Church, can you endure the unpleasant parts of the gospel? You may say, well, Liam, what what are the unpleasant parts of the gospel message? Um, 
I think what helps me think through these things is is to teach the gospel the way the New Testament teaches the gospel. So many times we talk about uh, asking Jesus into your heart, getting saved, getting baptized, getting to church. But you know, when, when the New Testament talks about salvation, it uses this term, in Christ. They say, this is what salvation is, is to be in Christ, joined with Christ. And there's some very pleasant parts about being joined with Christ. We're joined with him in his acceptance by the Father. We're joined to him in his eternal life and in his resurrection, but we're also joined to him in his death. That the call to come and be one with Christ is a call to come and die. We're also joined with Christ in his rejection, and we're joined to Christ in his um, suffering as well. And am I okay with that? Do I understand the two sides of this, that to be in Christ is to be in his death? There's no life without death. And Jesus provided life for us by dying on the cross, by subjecting himself to that so that we might have life in his name. You know, you think about the parable of the seed that I talked about earlier in Mark chapter 4. Immediately after the seed was planted in so many of those scenarios, something very unpleasant happened. Do you see this? Something very difficult happened as soon as the seed was planted. One, Satan comes and snatches it away. Second, a trial happens. Uh, something horrible happens in that person's life. And then third, there's, there's a temptation to go away because of the things of the world. And church, what exposes our character and what exposes our devotion to the Lord is what, how we operate and how we act during difficult times. Let me say this the right way. Make sure we're all on the same page. Enduring trials does not save you, but the way you endure trials reveals your status before God. Does that make sense? It's not the thing that saves you, but it's the thing that shows our devotion to the Lord. I've heard someone say before that crisis doesn't erode character, it just exposes character. And sometimes we see that purification through the trial. Trials are a very good opportunity for us to say, am I really trusting in Christ as a source of my life? And these people say, man, this is such a difficult Understanding so hard to understand this teaching, Jesus. And, and y'all, we're going to be faced with so many opportunities when we hear the truth and it is very unpleasant or faced with circumstances that are very unpleasant. Will we cling to the cross or will we run somewhere else? We see these disciples forsake Jesus in just a couple of verses. And church, I was just thinking, you can't leave Christ and go nowhere. You can't leave Christ and go nowhere. You will run to something else to satisfy you. When we leave Christ, there's already something in our minds, maybe consciously or unconsciously, that this is what I'm gonna go to to find satisfaction as well. And and if if it's another teaching, another gospel, if it's running to our jobs, to a relationship, because we say, I don't need Christ anymore. I found life somewhere else. We can't leave Christ and go nowhere. And so these people will see, leave him as well. It's in verse 66. It says, as a result of this, as a result of his teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Verse 67 shows us that these disciples are are separate from the 12. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? It's been a hectic few hours for Jesus and the disciples. One minute... They're sitting there figuring out how they're going to feed all these people, figuring out the logistics to serve the crowd. And the next moment, Jesus is looking at the 12 saying, so are are you sticking around? 
That's a pretty big high to a pretty big low. It's been a crazy turn of events. And Jesus says, are y'all going to leave me too? And then Peter turns around in verse 68 and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, where am I going to go? Does Peter say, oh, this is easy for me to understand? He doesn't say the gospel is easy. He doesn't say that uh, he doesn't have some things to work on in his life. He doesn't, he doesn't say he doesn't understand why these people left. He just says, I don't know where else to go to find life. There's no other source. There's no other answer for me. I'm desperate, and I know it's only you, and I have chosen you. reminds me I've, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. A sense of desperation, a sense of finality to say, this is where I'm going to trust him for life, and I'm not going to go anywhere else. Verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Remember John writing, John 20, 31, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, Peter was not perfect, but he was good soil. And he wasn't good soil because he worked or because he was an excellent person. He was good soil because he says, Lord, I don't know where else to go. You're the only way for me to have life. Earlier I said that, that in, endurance in trials does not necessarily mean that you're not saved. Let's say you, you forsake God in the midst of trials. That doesn't mean that you are outside of his grace. The reason I know that is because of Peter. Because think about Peter's story. He declares faith in this passage and says, Lord, I'm not going anywhere else. You are my king. You are my God. I believe that you are the Holy One of God. Was Peter saying these same things the night Jesus was crucified? No. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus three times. And all the while, while Peter was being unfaithful, Jesus was being very faithful to Peter. He was dying for Peter. He was securing Peter's salvation. And after that instance, Jesus goes to him. The resurrected Christ goes and sees him and says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he draws Peter back in. Church, that's good news for us who are people of faith. God's faithfulness is better than my faithfulness. And I am right before him, not based on my faithfulness and my endurance. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we forsake him. We try to run to other things to find life. And again and again, we are safe and secure in his love because it's not based on my performance. It's based on his. Good soil is not meaning that I'm faithful. To be a person of good soil means to trust in him as the source of your life. And I pray for each one of us, we would just join as a course, as a people, and say together, Lord, to whom shall we go? I'm not going anywhere else. I've tried some other things, and I know they come up short every single time. Life is only in him because of his faithfulness, because of his goodness and his power. In church, you can understand why John chapter 6, the teaching Jesus gives them would be so hard to understand because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. But we know now exactly what he was talking about. And this may be one of the most unpleasant or the most unpleasant truth of the gospel that for me to be right before the Father, Jesus had to die. 
Can we just let that sit for a second? Because so many times we get so used to saying, yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but he didn't deserve to pay your debt. He didn't have to pay your debt. And yet he did. And sometimes we can become so callous to the fact that our creator's blood is on the table. That the reason I'm in Christ is because he was tortured and he was killed. And that's unpleasant because for me to be connected to the Father, Jesus has to serve me in a very intimate way, in a way that, frankly, I'm not comfortable with. Reminds me again of Peter in John chapter 13 when Jesus tried to wash his feet. And Peter said, you're not washing my feet. You're not stooping to that level, Lord. God, I won't let you do this. And you know what Jesus said? He says, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. Church, there's one way for us to be connected to the Father, and it is through the sacrifice of Christ. You guys know on the way in, you got the elements for the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to ask you if, you if you take those out now. And I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up as well. And church, we've got to get to this place to recognize that there is no other source of life for me than through the body and the blood of Christ. And the spiritual reality of accepting the gospel is not to, to eat his, his body or to drink his blood, but it is to say, like Peter said, I know that you're the Holy One of God, that you're the one who can provide life for me. I believe in your identity. And so, church, I want us to take of the elements, and I want us to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on the goodness of God and also the exclusivity of the cross. What I mean by that is there is one way to the Father. There's not 10 ways, there's not a dozen ways, not a thousand ways, there's one way. And it is through his sacrifice. He said, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in yourself. And we do not take this stuff because we think that this is somehow gonna magically save us. Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, he said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And this is a time for us to come to the table and to remember the incredible sacrifice of Christ that has provided for us spiritual life. And sometimes we go to the passages that, where we see the Last Supper in the Gospels, or, or we go to 1 Corinthians to read. But again, I just, as, as we reflect, I want to read just one more time verses 51 through 58. And this be our passage as we begin to take the Lord's Supper. Let's look at John 6, verse 51. It says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Now as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, he broke bread with the disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And afterward, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, he is our life. And there's no other way. And I want to encourage you, if you've been looking to other things to find life, just stop. We know how that's going to go. And we know how that's going to end. The only thing we can do, y'all, John 3.16, look to the sun and live. And that's why we're going to sing this next song that I absolutely love called Behold the Lamb. Listen to the story of the gospel in this song. So incredible. This is the way to life, to look to the sun and to live as the one who gave up his life so we may have life in his name. Will you pray with me? God, you're so good to us. And every season, Lord, we recognize you are the basis of our righteousness. So, Father, I pray for just the humility, God, to, to recognize that I cannot live apart from you. So, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you every day, God, to come to give me the grace I need to live on mission for you. Father, I pray for Connection Church Athens, that we would be people of good soil. Lord, resting in the power of the gospel in the pleasant times and in the unpleasant times, God. Unwavering commitment to you because we can't go anywhere else to find this life. You're the only way. So God, I pray, would you be glorified in our time of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.